loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill. From his shining throne on high, comes to watch me where I lie. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. Then his little child will take up to heaven for his dear sake. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> For any of you joining us online, I'm Pastor Joel. Welcome to Heart City Church, where we share the good news of the Bible that Jesus loves you. Thank you, Gloria. <clears throat> so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John. It's towards the end of the Bible, 1 John 3, verses 9 to 18. Uh, you can turn on your devices. It's also printed in your bulletin. And if your devices are on, please turn those off so we don't have any interruptions. I appreciate that. While you turn there, I want to give us a little context. It's actually worth our time to know the situation that actually prompted the writing of this letter. The Apostle John took paper and pen to write to a church community that was in considerable crisis. There had been a bitter church split. Folks that they loved, cared about, had worshiped with regularly, had suddenly walked away. You see, these folks denied the faith in Jesus that they once professed together. They were denying that Jesus was truly God come in the flesh who offered his life for sins. Can you imagine? What if half the people were not here anymore? And this abandonment was actually only aggravated, it only aggravated the trauma that they had begun, that had begun in their lives after they became Christ followers. You see, once they were baptized, began to follow Jesus, family, friends, neighbors began shunning them as well. They quickly found that their church, their culture hated the church and their Christian living, the way they lived as Christians now. Do you see who John is writing to? They may be gathered in secret, actually, in a room now with maybe many empty chairs. The original hears this letter would have trauma, trust issues, anger, anxiety, abandonment. Maybe they're wondering at this point, is Jesus real? If they were really accepted by God. They actually had the Holy Spirit that had been poured out. They'd heard about poured out decades ago in this wonderful revival that happened in Pentecost, on Pentecost in Jerusalem. They're wondering, did that really happen? Was my commitment to Jesus a mistake as I look around? Maybe some were already starting to stray at this point. I suspect there's not a soul in this room who cannot relate on some level. 
If a flashlight were to shine into your soul right now, what would it reveal? What concerns consume you right now? What thoughts dominate your days? What emotions have the most powerful muscles and why? How do you see your spiritual situation right now? Your status before your savior? Friends, John is writing to folks who are more like us than they are different. And wonderfully, John is actually able to empathize, having experienced all this and more. And John today has words of assurance and a reminder of what love looks like, what love is. And he wants us all to help us to remember who we are and who we belong to. Let's pray that the Lord will take this scripture and testify to our spirits by his spirit. Father, we come to you with more needs than we're even aware of, more concerns, more heartaches, more difficulties. We also come in anticipation that you are the God who raises the dead to life. You're the God who, who brings healing to the hurting. You are the God who will turn our ashes, our mourning, into joy and dancing. So we ask and pray by the power of your spirit. We make the preacher go away and may we hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us clearly now that we may see our Savior and know his love and be changed to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John, starting in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. If you're joining us for the first time, we've actually been in the letter of 1 John for a little bit now. John wrote this letter to tell us that we can know Jesus and Father God really and personally. Your Bible is an invitation to know a person. John tells us at the very beginning how he actually met Jesus, God in the flesh, that God had come to befriend him. And John's joy, it only increases. He says, my joy is made complete when you discover that. You can have friendship with God too. And now we see in chapter 3, it's more than just friendship, more than just fellowship. 
Chapter 3 began with John over the moon about God's love in making us children. We belong to God. We are adopted children of God, and it's all of grace. When a parent adopts a child, the child has no say in that. It just happens. You were made God's. It's all of his grace, entirely voluntary on his part. You should be rejoicing every day, despite everything else in your life, that you have new identity in Jesus Christ as God's children. You are no longer who you once were if you are a believer. You are born into the family of God, born again. Now, if you're not yet Christian, God is up to something in your life, the fact that you're with us today. God brought you here to hear what he's done in Jesus for his glory and for your good. And he wants you to have new ways of thinking and feeling that are now shaped by his presence in your life. Do you know his presence? Are you experiencing his presence? Do you know he wants you to know his presence with you, wrapping you up in his loving arms? You'll find this begins to happen the moment you shift from self-reliance to savior-reliance, from trust in Joel to trust in Jesus. And you begin to find your true self. And by that, I mean something that we actually lost. We were all originally made God's children. That's what page one of our Bible teaches, Genesis 1. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled. At that moment, they became children of the devil. You see, we're not naturally children of God. Thomas Edison may have been the creator of the light bulb, but he could not walk in here and say that all these are his. There's a difference between being the creator and having relationship as a father. It was actually a big myth, us all being children of God, that I remember singing as a child. Maybe you remember Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie singing, We are the world. We are the children. Part of God's great big family. Remember singing that? And drinking Coca-Cola at the same time? Yeah. I find it strange that I actually have to spend time preaching about this, especially in our day. I didn't watch a lot of the news last week, but I saw enough to know that the devil's Fingerprints are all over our planet and our community right now. These things are not being done by children of the world who are part of God's family. They're not living to please their Heavenly Father. Everyone is living to please their Father. I'm talking about their spiritual Father. It's either God or it is Satan. These tragedies we see on the news are being done by children of the devil. That's what John said in verse 10. The children of the devil are evident by their unrighteous practices and their lack of love. And the children of God are evident by the righteous deeds, as we saw last week. And they do love their fellow believers, as John is now going to remind us this week. This is where he's carrying on. And I love this chapter. It has been filled with so many assurances that have blessed me. I hope it's blessing you. If you have a relationship with God, you're going to find wonderful reassurances for those times when you're doubting. For whatever reasons, maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you have a lot of doubts right now. This isn't uncommon. And John knows this. Actually, he had a really close friend. His name was Doubting Thomas. Right? And he needed more evidence. After all the things he had seen Jesus do for him, he heard Jesus' words of life. And even Doubting Thomas struggled with assurance. John knows we need assurance during our Christian walk to know that God is with us, that God is for us, 
And he began chapter 3 by reminding us with what ought to consume every Christian believer's mind every day. We should get up every day and preach to ourselves. We ought to sing to ourselves that we are children of God, and it's all the grace. That should be what consumes you more than any other thought. And then verse 9, I love this. He gives us a wonderful illustration to assure us that it's true, that we're born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John says that those who are born again are God's children, and they have God's seed abiding in them. I'm glad that John used the illustration of a seed because seeds are really, really tiny, teeny tiny. You plant a seed in the dirt, and you don't say, incredible, look at that, oh, right? I watched a zinnia grow, actually, I remember, in a little styrofoam cup and when I was in elementary school, a little tiny seed in there. It was incredible. It took a long time, though, right, before finally I said a little tiny shoot, and then finally get to take it home and plant, and it took a while before I saw this beautiful flower. Now, that was just a flower. What if my elementary school teacher had asked me to plant an acorn or a maple seed? I, I don't think I would have guessed as a little kid that there's an entire tree inside that little tiny acorn. A tree with the power to break concrete. I see my sidewalks around my neighborhood. There is great power in that little seed that transforms over time. But John says that you, believer, have something infinitely greater this is no ordinary planting, no ordinary seed. You have implanted inside you the very DNA of God Almighty. And that seed is beginning to work itself out through your whole being. Your true self in God is breaking through and transforming you, and your false self is being broken apart and broken away as you enter into the new you that God created you to be. And here's how you know. Are you listening? In the coming days, maybe today or this week, you're going to face a temptation to practice unrighteousness. Something maybe you've done before many times. But when it happens, here's what your response is going to be. I cannot do that. I can't involve myself. That's not me. I'm not that person anymore. And when that happens, I want you to remember 1 John 3, 9 and give glory to God. Give God thanks for proof that his DNA is bursting through you and changing your whole course of life because you're a different person. That's giving evidence that you truly are his and really bearing his image. Every time you're able to turn from sin that was once in you, that you used to do, used to enjoy, that's God's work. You can't practice unrighteousness. It doesn't happen all at once, but over and over you'll see this in the course of your life. Maybe you've seen a young man growing up. It's kind of like this also. And you suddenly see something striking. You look at him or you hear him say something, and suddenly you're like, wow, that's a spitting image of his father. Huh? You ever seen that? This is what is happening. As you are free to do righteousness, you're beginning to look more and more like your righteous heavenly father. At that moment, just take a moment and rejoice that you're no longer, you, you're not a child of the devil. You belong to God despite all the other stuff going on. Over and over in your life, God is breaking through and helping you to be who you're truly meant to be. And it all starts with a little tiny seed. Now the rest of this text, John is going to start to really flesh out the difference of the two humanities. There are two humanities on planet Earth. And he's going to show how there are those who are the children of the devil and they're like Cain. And then there are the children of God who love like Jesus. 
Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I guess Lennon and McCartney had it right. All we need is love. Of course, the problem is they did not know how to love like Jesus. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here 50 years later in the mess we're in right now. Now, this is actually an important verse in this letter because it's kind of marking off the beginning of the second half of the letter. Remember after John's introduction, he said, this is the message that you've heard that God is light. And then God is, he goes on to tell us how God wants us to walk as children of light. Now John is telling us that God's family bears a second, second primary characteristic. We walk in love. And particularly, we love our siblings in the Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now what is this beginning that John is talking about? There's some argument here. I believe that John is talking about the message that swept through the Mediterranean during the first century. New welcoming communities were springing up everywhere that were centered around Jesus Christ and nothing else. Jesus Christ was a welcoming savior who welcomed all kinds of people. He gathered to himself, just read the gospels, people of every class, race, status. John actually wrote in his gospel how in chapter three, John received Nicodemus. What's he like? He's a righteous, educated, highly classed man. He's an Israelite teacher, the highest stratosphere. What does he do in John 4? Jesus makes a special trip just to welcome to himself a Samaritan woman, woman who had a reputation so bad she was ashamed to be around with her own people. An Israelite hero and a Samaritan outcast brought into the same family in Jesus Christ. That's who our welcoming Savior is. And he also knew, John, that Jesus brought together a band of the least likely. You have a guy who's basically a terrorist on one side. You have another guy who's working for Rome. You have fishermen, uneducated people. And John also remembered on the night when Jesus, after he gathered these together, on the night he was to be betrayed, he washed all their feet. And then he gave them this new command that they were to love one another as he had loved them. And after Jesus went to heaven, the disciples then took this message out to the world. And that thing that Michael Jackson could only dream of actually began to become a reality in tangible ways. And John begins the second half of this letter by reminding them of that, that they're to love one another because of the way they had been loved. You can't live sacrificially unless you know that you are greatly loved. And they were to welcome others in the same way they had been welcomed in this family, with no deference to class, race, any other thing. Of course, there's the problem. We still have this old nature, this old tendency. So John now sets forth the first man who actually rejected God's welcome. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If you have a Bible, I've encouraged you to turn to Genesis chapter four, to the very front of your Bible here. This was of some help to me to look at this story to see why John goes there. You know that Cain was the very first son of Adam and Eve. 
And then after that, he had a brother born named Abel. And in this, this chapter, you'll read about how both of them offered sacrifices to God. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's was not. And there's a whole lot of speculation about the reason why. But I think there's something more significant highlighted here. Look at verse 5 where we read, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, that's God. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Let me stop there. Notice God does not kick Cain to the curb. God goes to Cain, and he has obviously not done right. He hasn't done well. But he welcomes Cain, says, give it another go. God is rooting for Cain here. He asks him the question, if you do well, I will accept you. Don't you believe that? And if not, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's a scary picture to get in front of us. If you don't want to please God, there's this cosmic evil supernatural force that's dominating this world like a predatory being crouching, waiting to pounce on you. You think about that? You can read the rest for homework later. Where Cain, instead of going and getting another sacrifice, fearing sin, wanting to be accepted by God, what does he do? He says, hey, Abel, come out here. Let's go out to the field. And he kills his brother. And John tells us why. The reason why was Cain was not a child of God. And he had no desire to be a part of God's family. It was not mere indifference to God. And what he des just because he desired, you know, what he wanted in this world. It's not mere indifference. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because of his righteous deeds. Here, only one generation after the first sin. Some people think that's a peccadillo, just taking a fruit that God said no. Look at what happens when sin starts its work. Within one generation, fratricide. The cold-blooded murder of an unsuspecting little brother. When sin crouches, friends, its desire for you is to master you and to destroy you and anybody else it can get its hands on. That's why John says we can't be like that. And the good news is God welcomes us to a better way, the same way he welcomed Cain. But he says also that we should not be surprised when we get the able treatment in this world. And it may even happen within your own family, those close to you. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I've talked to many Christians over here. It seems like it's growing. We're just shell-shocked that our nation is starting to turn anti-church. What's happening to our world? try to redirect the conversation at times, but they go on and on about the horror. They've taken prayer out of the school. They removed the Ten Commandments monument from the front of the municipal building. You know, now we're being accused of being bigots, you know, or prudes because of our sexual ethics. We don't like the thought of being hated, do we? There I say that the problem is that we're actually too conformed to this world. 
that we have too high of an opinion of a culture that's living on borrowed Christian capital? Dare I say that we maybe don't know our Bibles, 1 John 3.13, or we don't believe it? Because John says we should expect this. We shouldn't be surprised. I'm so glad we're memorizing scripture together. Let's say again our verse of the month together. Extra points if you don't have to look underneath their sermon text and recite it. Just kidding, no bonus points. It's all grace here. Let us say together, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that trusting you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Glad I threw grace out there because I lost myself for a little there. Romans 12.2. Friends, our world is fast accelerating away from righteousness, away from God. I found it interesting that I've had more folks than ever recently asking me about God's will. What is God's will in my life? Multiple people just last week. I keep saying the same thing. Let's be in our Bibles. Let's really be knowing our Bibles. God gave us this as a personal invitation to know him, to know his will, but more to know him. Because if you actually know a person, you begin to understand what their will is. I can testify to that with my wife. Knowing her is a whole lot better than reading about her and trying to figure out what, no, this is an invitation to know a person, to know what they want and what God wants for you because he wants you to know him more and more so that he can be renewing you daily as you come to understand his will and, and come to experience his presence. And you're being renewed by drawing near. That's what that verse is about, by coming into life. And John now gives us another wonderful reassurance about this. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I love how he puts in this wonderful reassurance in the middle of this Cain section. It's a wonderful passage for pastors who run into dear saints who are struggling with assurance. They come and say, Pastor, I'm just not feeling close to God right now. He just seems far off. I wonder why my faith seems so shaky right now. Is God for me, Joel? And I hear John's voice in this verse, and I can ask them, well, dear soul, how do you feel about Gloria? How do you feel about Rex? And they say, oh, well, I love this sister. I love Rex. I pray for him all the time. When they're down, I'm worried. I want to help them. I'm concerned about them. They're important to me. They matter to me. I'm like, well, there you go. Your love for your brothers and sisters actually reveals how close God is to you. That is assurance of salvation right there. It's clear to me that you have eternal life. You have the life of God abiding in you because of the way you care for those in the church. I love how John points this out. It's not just your quiet times with God where you discover God's presence. It's when you call up a dear sister on the phone because she didn't come to church. You just want to make sure she's okay. Guess what? God's with you. God's near. God's at work in your life. There's proof of his abiding seed that's working its way out. How we think and how we feel about others in the faith is an indicator of actually where we're at. Of course, the opposite is true. If we hate a brother, if we hate a sister, we must repent of that. Jesus warned us that to speak a harsh word against a brother 
is like unto murder. It's a trait of Cain. And that has no place in the family of God, no place in the church. Cain's actions, they're the defining characteristic of this age, of this world. And they cannot be the defining characteristic of any church if it claims to have Jesus Christ as their Lord. We can't look like our world that murders not simply with the weapons we see, but also with words. No, rather, we're to look at how Jesus loved. That's where to look. If we want to impact our world and those around us we care about, verse 16, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life, lives for the brothers. John now tells us how it is that we as Christians know love. One word, sacrifice. Sacrifice. The world defines love as a feeling that brings personal pleasure. The Bible describes love as an action that brings personal pain, even death. In love for us, who are all by nature children of the devil, and think about this. I mean, the devil was the first to say, the very first to say, I reject serving my creator and I want to rule my life how I want. And we see Cain doing exactly what his daddy did, right? You see why John held forth Cain as the first son of Satan in a sense? But Jesus came and did the exact opposite. Even, those, even though he was ruling and he had nothing to gain by coming to earth, Jesus set aside his glory and became human to live the pleasing life that you and I haven't done. And then he was sacrificed on the cross to deal with all your sin, to deal with all your shame. And he was raised into heaven so that you can now share the eternal life with him. But he has a mission for you right now. The church is the instrument of God by which he wants to make sure, make his glory known and bring people into the family. So while you're here on earth for this brief little moment, some of you are older and you get what I'm saying. I'm 48. Our life is so brief. We have the opportunity to love like Jesus loved, sacrificially. You did catch that, right? I tried to sacrifice. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What do you think that means? How would Christians in countries where our faith is forbidden, how would they hear that? Reformation Day is drawing near. How did our reformers understand that verse? How would John's first readers have understood it? They would have understood it literally. Literally. Many of them actually knew brothers and sisters who had died, as did John. John remembers what happened after Jesus handed over the mission and headed up to heaven. One of the first evangelists the disciples sent out was seized by a group called the freedmen. After this evangelist testified that Jesus was the Messiah, the righteous one, they murdered him. This group's leader became a state-sanctioned terrorist. This man was so consumed with hatred for Christians that he began to go from city to city, town to town, house to house, dragging Christians out of their homes. Every church, every Christian was a target. As this man taught, sought total extermination of all the Christians. What do you think about that? Because friends, John, the writer of this letter, understands hurt from within and hate from without. He understands. And John knows that being hurt and being hated can often 
lead us to love less, and we can't do that. We can't allow that to happen. Can I get a witness? But John says, don't let that happen. Look at Jesus' love for you, and look at your brothers and sisters in their need. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I read this verse and it always comes to mind. Phil Collins singing, Just Another Day in Paradise. The man with a close heart as he sees the woman crying out for help. Friends, that can't be the case with us. The world can act like that because they should. Because they're children of the devil. We can't. Because we belong to a Savior who has an open heart. And he holds it out gentle and lowly again and again and again. That was actually the error of those who left the church. They decided to abandon God in the flesh. That was the big error. But think about what's behind that. They just wanted Jesus as a good teacher, a good example of someone who did sacrificial things. They wanted teachings that they could follow and look good then in their own lives. They didn't want to follow a Jesus that actually required them to lay down their own because he had done everything for them and had paid for all their sins, which they could never do on their own. And those people, they never impacted the world. Those who read John's letter about the real Jesus, not just the teacher Jesus others were espousing at the time, did impact the world. They held fast to the true faith, but they also created a gospel culture, a gospel culture by their sacrificial living. And it spread through Rome like wildfire. The very people that John is writing to, as they're sitting in this little tiny group, after all these people left, they're being persecuted by the world, they transformed Rome. I'm gonna talk about this more last week. There's a letter from Justinian who says, our biggest problem right now is these Christians, they're taking care of our people better than we are and them, each other. This is a real problem. They're making us look bad. They're righteous deeds. Friends, we're called to love our brothers and sisters with sacrificial giving, with what we have. It's not a closed hand. Notice John says a closed heart. I'm so thankful to be part of this group that I've gotten to witness the love of Jesus and so many of you. You who are members especially, you don't join an inner city church plant unless you're willing to love like Jesus with sacrificial giving. You don't join a church like this. I'm so pleased to be a part of this group. You're choosing to spend your life for others' good. Here's the kicker. You'll get more in the end than if you try and seek good for yourself just by selfish means. That's the amazing thing. But we need to grow in our welcome. To give the same welcome that Jesus Christ gave to, gave to us. So don't come to church. Don't come to church just because you're paying your religious weekly tax. That's not why you come to church. We come to church because Jesus has welcomed us in here and we're just amazed by it. And we don't invite people to our church. We invite them to Christ. That's what we do. We invite them to Jesus Christ because Jesus is found here, especially in the fellowship. And we're going to come back to these last verses next week, but I want to close with encouragement to us to continue to love those who we don't find it easy to love. Folks may, may not think deserve it. To not merely, we want to not merely speak well of them. That's easy, right, to smile and say a kind word, but then 
think the thoughts. I want to encourage us to truly welcome others in the same way you've been welcomed. And then as we're going to sing the song, Ferris Lord Jesus, I want you to get that person in your mind. I want to get in your mind that brother or sister is difficult. If they happen to be in the room, don't look at them right now, okay? Get them in your mind, okay? And I want you to talk to Jesus. I want you to look Jesus in the face and just be honest with him. Say, Jesus, this is far too uncomfortable. This is too hard. This person doesn't deserve it, Jesus. They've hurt me. They've hated others. And they're not worthy of it. Look Jesus in the face. And Jesus will look right back at you. And he's going to say with a kind face, you're right. It is uncomfortable. It's hard. But it's not about their deserving it. And they have hurted and they've hated and they aren't worthy. But friend, now you're beginning to understand the cross and what I did for you in love. And if you want to know me better, if you want to know me more intimately, you don't have to wait until glory in heaven. You can come to know my love by taking up your cross right now. Friends, do you want to know Jesus better? Anybody here want to know Jesus better? Amen. Amen. Do you want others to know his love? I have nothing more to say than let's just pray because we need help, don't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you and we are weak and we see our Cain-like tendencies and we ask your forgiveness for these. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're smiling right now and you've got hands that are pierced with nails. You've got a side with a scar that you bore for us. And we confess it often hurts, Jesus. We thank you that you are a Savior who can empathize and you are showing us how much you love us with every pain we go through. There are difficult people around us and we need your help. So will you allow that seed that you've placed in our hearts to grow and to work its way out that we may love in new ways and show forth precious love of Jesus Christ to extend his arms and love on the hardwood of the cross that we might come within his saving embrace. Will you give us your spirit that we might extend our arms in the same to those around us to the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I had the wrong song in mind, so it's been a long week, so this is still a good one. Turn your eyes on Jesus. I don't think that'll make it in the sermon audio, so I'll be okay. <laughs> Please rise. Let us, let us turn our eyes on Jesus.
in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. 